In our continuing coverage of the DOJ report, um, we're going to take a different angle with it today. We've covered this with some intensity in terms of uh, the physical and verbal abuse that many people in this community have taken, uh, the questions of, um, of not taking women and their allegations of sexual assault seriously, of involvement, potential involvement of police officers with sex workers in the street, um, wondering how far off the chain command all this went. But there's a piece of, the, piece of this report that really has not gotten a lot of light. And this will be our first blush to look at this. Um, and it has to do with disabilities and people with disabilities, mental and physical disabilities, and how the police interact with our community. And it's, again, I think as damning as the other pieces that we've read and calls for some serious action. So to begin that process, we're joined here in the studio by Virginia Knowlton Marcus, who is Executive Director of Disability Rights Maryland. Virginia, welcome. Good to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. So this has been kind of an overlooked in some ways. In some ways, yes. Um, although all the issues that you have been covering have a disability component to them. I mean, it's it's completely intersectional with the with the race issues, with the um, with the um, coverage that you had around the um, uh, allegations of the sex workers not being taken seriously. People with disabilities are also not being taken seriously when they describe some of the abuses that they've faced. And there's often not follow-up because they're perceived as um, less credible. Uh, so all of the issues that you've been covering are really disability issues, even um, to the extent of the communities that have been targeted have a higher incidence of disability. Um, so I'm really happy to be able to, to talk about that uh, as a standalone issue, but also really intertwined in part and parcel with all the coverage that you've had thus far. So, so, so I mean, when you look at these specific parts, I mean, that, that um, and I've seen this and talked about in the program over the last 20-some years, the interaction with that police have with people, especially people with mental disabilities, mm-hmm. um, people who are schizophrenic, people who have real serious emotional disorders. Um, and the kind of violence that takes place between police and those citizens. Um, so, I mean, in the, in the, in the, in the DOJ report just outlines at least, I'm, I've read through it, and it's at, at least 10 examples of people yes. who have been confronted by the police and been tased and beaten and handcuffed. Yes. So, and killed. And killed. And killed. So talk about what, what, what your perspective on what some of these cases were about, and then we'll get into a little bit about what can be done. Right. Well, um, it's really deeper and broader than the need for police training. I mean, it's because that's where the calls for a lot in the report. They're talking about training. Right? Yes, which is just one piece of it. But you know, the police are us, just like the government is us. And there's how people with disabilities are othered and marginalized in our society, as though they're some sort of separate kind of being, right, as opposed to members of our community that are in need of some support or some assistance or some help. Um, They're more uh, often considered to be a problem to be dealt with so that even when there are these incidences that don't need to be lethal, that don't need to be confrontational, that can be um, de-escalated, so many times when these incidents are described it's almost as if the, um, the, the victim 
bears the responsibility for the encounter, you know, um, that the person who has a disability is so um, difficult to deal with uh, that somehow they caused the, the result, the, the, their own pain and suffering. Uh, so it's a little bit more difficult to get an appropriate remedy. So what justice has done here in this report is um, they've talked about some specific case examples, and this is endemic. Um, nationwide, hundreds of people with disabilities are killed um, and, and hurt in encounters with law enforcement. Most of whom are unarmed? Many, yes, most of whom are unarmed. Um, in fact, there are more, and it's intersectional, so there's more unarmed black disabled people who are harmed in police encounters than, than white people overall. How shocking. Right. <laughs> right. So you can't really separate the problem, mm-hmm. and that's why you can't really have separate streams in terms of the solution. So it's very important that people understand the underlying disability components that infuse all these policing problems and and elevate the voices of people with disabilities in the discussions around what are we going to do to remedy these problems. But they happen all over the country. They happen very frequently. And what justice has done is it's called it out as a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. That that the police department's pattern and practice of use of force and other practices with respect to people with disabilities is a violation of their their legal and civil rights. And so now we have this opportunity for a more meaningful discussion and more meaningful solutions. But I think that, you know, the police need more training is just one small part of it. So well, I'm going to get to what you you said this several times today. It's more than training. So I, I'm, I, I'm going to come to that in a moment because I think that's really important to kind of figure out what this means. Because the report calls for lack of – says there's been a lack of training on handling analysts. And when they confront somebody who has a mental disability, like one of the examples – the many examples they have, the example of a man who is naked in the street. Yes. Um, and talking to himself and screaming and throwing out biblical verses. Yes. Um, he was tased. Yes. And six police officers grabbed him and threw him to the ground um, and threw him in the back of a paddy wagon and tased again. And nobody really – he was just was taken to the hospital, but nobody really kind of cared for what happened to him, right? Right, because the lives of a disabled person in a state like that is so devalued in our society. Right. They're not important. They're just crazy people. They're just crazy people. They're a problem. They're a nuisance. They need to be – they're not a member of our community that needs some help. So, all right. Many people in our society are frightened of people with disabilities. Yes. That's not justification. I'm just kind of reality. People mm-hmm. don't know how to deal with somebody who has or address somebody or talk to somebody or help somebody who has a severe mental disability. Or they believe that they don't. Maybe they've never had the opportunity to, to try. So what does that mean? Well, you know, we're all afraid of the unknown. We're all afraid of the other. So when people are, are, are othered, like people with this disabilities have been, they become those people. Those people are – and you can put any kind of label on it that you want to. They're, they're difficult. They're strange. They're 
erratic, they're dangerous, but they're just labels. So that's interesting. Yes, I mean, I've, I've, I haven't worked in the field before many, many moons back. I mean, I, and I know I understand that. But but when people act in an erratic way, yes. when people talk to themselves, yes. when people uh, dress bizarrely in terms of society, and yes. where as, as another person who was attacked here by the police who was wearing a warm winter winter coat on a brutally hot day, right? Clearly, something he was having some serious issues. Or the young man inside the house, uh, whose father called the police and said he needs some help. He's not on his medication, and again, he was tased and beaten and right. and and hanged up and brought out. So I mean, but so before we get to the police part, I mean, but people themselves, citizens at large, don't know how to address this. Right, but there are people say. who do. Right. So there are people who are very accustomed to working with people with disabilities, and it's not that um, mysterious to them. Um, they've seen these kinds of situations many times. They've successfully worked themselves through situations like these many times. And these are the collaborations that DOJ has has called out and said are not happening. I mean, really, is it fair to call the police for every single social problem from, uh-huh. you know, I can't get my cat out of a tree to I can't get my <laughs> son, you know, um, to get the parka off on a 90-degree day. So there should be more collaborations with folks in the community who are um, competent, culturally competent. Uh, this, this is really interesting. Let me just stop before we get right back to the DOJ and the police because I think that, that um, th- this is a really important issue. Mm-hmm. So we, we talk – We've been talking a lot – I've been talking a lot on this program about the idea of different models of public safety, different yes. ways of intervening in things that happen in our society. And you just kind of touched on one that may be important for people to think about. I mean, is it always necessary for the police to be called if someone calls and said, my son or daughter is acting erratically or we see a man in the street who is naked? Um, is that a police question? Should there be, should there be community mental health workers? That maybe the money comes out of the police budget, maybe who knows, just for argument's sake, that actually the people who are on call to help de-escalate the situation before there's a necessity to call the police. Yeah, I take it a step farther and say that there should be greater use of peer support. What is that? People with disabilities themselves um, should be supported to to provide support for people and to and and to be part of these discussions actually about what. What are the remedies? What what should be in the consent decree, for example? Um, and they're left out quite frequently in 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 the solution. And they have people with disabilities can be part of the solution. Nobody knows better what the problem is than we do. I mean, it's, I mean, even when you have that sometimes. That's a little bit of a digression. But in North Miami, when that uh, an African American man who a black man who was taking care of an autistic man yes. who was in a street playing with a car. Arnaldo Rios, yeah. And the police shot the, the mental health worker yes. who's working with a kid, working with a man. Right, right. And their explanation was that they didn't mean to shoot Mr. Kinsey. They meant to shoot Mr. Rios. And <laughs> I believe that Mr. Rios is still in an institution that is not appropriate to his needs to this day since that incident. Where the man, he'll de- where he'll the autistic man. Yes, yeah, yeah. He was institutionalized as a result of the incident. So, so, so this is, this is a bigger problem in some senses. It's huge. 
Yeah. That even this that even is reflected in the DOJ report, which was damning in terms of how police interact with people with mental disabilities, and as they put in the report, lack of training. Lack of training. Or calling on people who could actually help. Lack of collaboration. Right. Right. And and failure to de-escalate. So so all right. So you take a situation like what they describe these in these reports. Right. The, the men, the human beings they describe in these reports, the, the men and women. So what does it mean to de-escalate when you have a man who's naked in the middle of the street who's really schizophrenic or, man, or a man or woman's in the house and they have not taken their medication mm-hmm. and parents call? Any situation you could name. So, so what does it mean to de-escalate? And how do they approach that? What are they, what are they not doing? So I think you have to start from the premise that this is a, a human being whose life is valuable and that to do no harm is is the number one um, priority in the interaction, and uh, so and to recognize that many disabilities are invisible, um, and because of how people with disabilities are frequently treated and marginalized in society, there's a lot of trauma there, um, uh, mistrust. Uh, there's not always going to be a belief that the interaction is going to end well for the person with the disability. So there's likely to be resistance or running away or perhaps due to an intellectual disability or um, an autism spectrum disorder, PTSD, traumatic brain injury, you know, any number of things, intellectual disability, the person may not be able to immediately conform their behavior to, to, to follow orders, right? So if a person doesn't immediately follow orders, that doesn't necessarily mean that the next step should be to, to point a gun or, or to yell it louder or, um, you know, to, to tase the individual. But what you can do is you can try to engage the person, communicate, find, you know, try to find out what's going on with the person, maybe contain you know, what's really going on? A person is naked in the street. Is anybody really being hurt? You know, so, so some time can be taken to figure out what is going on, and it doesn't have to immediately involve an escalation of, of um, the person didn't follow my order, so, so I pointed a gun, and the gun scared the person, and so they ran away, and so I shot um, and this is – it sounds, you know, ridiculous. Right. But over and over and over again, these are the kinds of encounters. I mean, there's people who are deaf, who couldn't hear the instruction, who have been killed because they didn't conform their behavior immediately to what the law enforcement officer told them to do. And the person – the law enforcement officer may have had a reasonable belief that the person was – but, you know, he didn't hear he didn't hear the order, and it sort of never crossed the officer's mind. They just know that the person isn't doing. He doesn't hear what you hear. He didn't hear what you hear, right? So, is it necessary in all instances to have that, you know, immediate and complete obedience, or is there something else going on here? Another issue is um, sort of what happens to the person once they get picked up by the police. Then what happens? I mean, should people really be going to jail for these minor offenses? You probably 
um, um, heard about the, the uh, secretary of DHMH being held in contempt because there aren't enough beds in the state psychiatric hospitals to move people out of jail. So, um, so a work group was convened to take a look at these issues. And there were areas of agreement and areas of disagreement in this work group where one thing that everybody agreed on is that one of the problems in the system that's creating a logjam is there's just too many you know, sweeps of people off the street going into jail. To bring them to the emergency department takes time. You know, they, it may take hours to get to the person, and the law enforcement officer will be asked to, to wait. And so it's easier to just book the person, to bring them to jail. Do they really belong there for um, trespassing or, or these kinds of, of crime? Should the police really be involved in all of these situations? So uh, coming back to the DOJ report here from them, which is where we started. And right, the, right. The reason we, we were talking about this. So, what, what, so what, what's your analysis of what they wrote? I mean, when they say that the Baltimore Police Department's deficient policies, training, crisis intervention, and lack of oversight underlie the pattern of practice of excessive force and violations of Americans with Disability Act, or that deficient policies contributed to and permitted the police pattern of practice of excessive force, um, questions of a lack of training. So what's your response to this report? It's a, uh, we agree with everything that the DOJ wrote. I mean, we think that they're completely on point, that they identified a lot of the longstanding <clears throat> systemic issues, that there is an appropriate oversight, um, there is an appropriate training. Uh, what training does exist? Is there really any follow-up or analysis to determine the efficacy of that training? Um, is there is there any attempt to make sure that that people who you know officers that demonstrate greater cultural competency with folks who have disabilities are responding to those kinds of calls, um, and that people who have demonstrated uh, a very poor ability to to assess a situation involving a person with a disability to de-escalate a situation involving a person with a disability don't go out in those kinds of matters there, there's none of that um, and it and it and it bleeds over into all the other issues all the other all the other isms all the other you know the racism and the and the classism um, the ableism <coughs> is is endemic throughout these these problems and ableism meaning for people who don't understand that terminology. Yes, when we talk about white privilege, for example, <coughs> what white privilege includes is able-bodied. A person who is able-bodied has privilege over a person who is disabled. That's so invisible. It's so not talked about. It's so not understood. And until we talk about it, what's happening to people with disabilities? What's happening to black people with disabilities? What's happening to poor black people with disabilities? You know, we're really not going to ex- understand what the problem is about and what the solutions need to be. That's what's so significant about DOJ naming it in their report. So, okay. So, but one of the things that has to happen out of DOJ is things that. The, the, Part of the idea they have to support is that things have to change. Yes. So in terms of the police, in terms yes. of how this process works, given that the flaws they found, how do you change what's what's occurring and what has occurred? Right. So one um, – well, I think that the first thing we have to do is we have to get 
the community members, the disability community members, wrapping their ideas around that question because it's a big question, right? And it's not just the police; it's it's everybody. It's a social problem that we have. So I think that we need to directly involve the people who are most affected by this problem in what you know. What are the right questions, and what are the answers to those important questions? So that's number one. Number two, in terms of the training, I think that we have to recognize, and this is sort of one um, piece of feedback that I did offer to DOJ when, um, when I had a chance to talk to them about this is when we're talking about police responses to people with disabilities, we're not just talking about people in crisis. The disability community is very diverse. So there's people with psychiatric disabilities, but that doesn't mean people who are erratic and crazy and dangerous. There's people who have various in, invisible disabilities like, like um, bipolar disorder, like, um, uh, like a traumatic brain injury. Post-traumatic stress. Right, or tra- post-traumatic stress disorder, right? So there's all kinds of invisible disabilities that aren't necessarily psychiatric disabilities. Then you have people with intellectual disabilities, Right? You have people who have auditory processing issues. You have people who are, who are actually deaf. So, so, so there's a number of problems that, that it, it, it can't just be like CIT. We need more CIT-type training. We need a more comprehensive training. We need people to understand that when you handcuff a deaf person, it's like you've just gagged them. You know? Because they can't you speak with away hands. their means of communication. Exactly. So it, it has to be a more... A more um, Comprehensive set um, of training, and there needs, and it, and it hasn't really existed yet. Like for example, Ethan Saylor was killed in uh, 2013 in Frederick, Maryland. Well, the young, young man who was with Down syndrome, right? In the movie theater. In the movie theater, he didn't want to leave. Didn't want to leave. Two off-duty police officers who were acting as security escalated that situation to the point where Ethan Saylor died. Some of the news reports were tantamount to blaming Ethan Saylor's disability for that death. When that is a classic example of a situation that could have been, should have been de-escalated. Ethan Saylor should not be dead. His attendant was with him. She told the police, if you touch him, he's going to freak out. His mother's on his way to pick him up, and it was all ignored, and, and he's no longer with us. But his mother um, uh, is a great advocate, and as a result of her advocacy, Governor O'Malley created a commission, a commission on the effective, con- uh, effective community inclusion of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So as a result, we just call it the Sailor Commission. And so they did a number of um, listening sessions around the state, and they did have to focus like just on first responders' interactions with people with disabilities. But what really came out of those listening sessions is it's it's not just first responders; it's the it's the whole community, it's all of us, and how we think of people with disabilities, and how we respond to them, and how we include them or exclude them from our communities. But they did just focus on that first responder piece just because they had to you know start somewhere so they created a training curriculum specific to folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities because most of the training out there was just focusing on people in a psychiatric crisis you know the CIT training and it didn't exist before it didn't exist so now they've started where the new um, um, the new law enforcement officers who are coming out of the academy will receive this training 
uh, and there and there's going to be an attempt to make it statewide. So the goal is by 2018 to have 30,000 law enforcement officers in Maryland participate in this training curriculum. Well, let me tell you what's so, and there should be follow-up and there should be, you know, um, there should be an analysis and an assessment of whether the training was effective and whether it made a difference. But what is so critical about what they developed is that they found that the only way it was going to be effective is if people with disabilities themselves were trainers. So what the training consists of is role-playing, real-life situations that occur time and time again all across the country with lethal or other bad results where law enforcement encounter people with disabilities and have a person with a disability there themselves. It does so much to, to remove misperceptions, um, stereotypes, stigma, uh, just to have that person there. But people with disabilities are always expected to sort of volunteer for this kind right, of a duty. Right. The resources need to be there to support the disability advocates in the community so they can bring this forward and really be part of the solution. And that's what's exciting, and that's what will work. And that's what your organization is going to try to push around this DOJ report. Among other things, yes. Um, another thing that uh, we believe is really important is, you know, I talked a little bit about what happens to people, how they just sort of get swept off the street and and, and sent to jail. There really needs to be um, a, a, a system 24-7 statewide of, of, of crisis services for people. You know, there's really not a safe haven for people in crisis to land. And this, this cuts across all disability types. So, for example, you have people in a group home who have behavioral issues. It's under-resourced. It's understaffed. Um, there's a flare-up, you know, a behavioral issue that arises, and staff will call the police. What is the police supposed to do with that person? And so these people just end up in jail, and as a result of these bad encounters, of course there's going to be resistance. Of course they're going to flee. Of course people are going to, you know, not immediately obey when the police say freeze right there do we really need to be having these kinds of encounters and and and, and escalate them and handle them in this manner i think that we don't right I, almost begs the question we've been doing another day <clears throat> if the staff can't handle it what are they doing there in the first place <laughs> but valid question so so this is this is interesting so that's a training issue right that's a training issue. That's a training issue, and that's a yeah, and it's a resource issue. Maybe you need one-to-one -one staff for certain individuals, and you don't get it. Um, you know, so we I really believe that looking at the police is one piece of it, but really, it's it's deeper than that. It's broader than that, and a real effective solution is going to take that into account and say what do we lack in our communities and what do we lack in our society that is causing this to happen all over the country year after year hundreds of times where a person with a disability often a person of color with a disability although that's not what's reported on I mean, we don't really think of um of ms bland as having a, a disability or mr gray or mr uh, garner as a person with a disability but that's what they are they're people of color with disabilities why do you say that wait, 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 let me step back a minute so why do they say they have, i mean there was no indication that mr garner had a disability or that Eric garner yeah he was a, he yes he was a disabled person mm-hmm 
Yeah. Disabled how? He had asthma. Oh, that he, okay. No, I'm sorry. I'm missing. So you're in the broadest sense we're talking about. Right, and in fact, there were even some 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 news reports where it seemed that his his disabilities again, sort of like Ethan Saylor, where the disab the the death was there was some focus on his condition for the lethal result in that encounter. You know, he was a large man. He could hardly walk a block without wheezing, right? So, you know, sort of, well, his disabilities caused him to die, but his disabilities did not cause him to die. An unnecessary encounter with law enforcement caused that death. Well, we're going to continue this in coming weeks and, and uh, I'm looking forward to it, too, and bringing people in, as, you, as we talked about during today. And um, this is in our continuing look at how we change things here. Virginia Knowlton Marcus is executive director of the Disability Rights of Disability Rights Maryland. We've been talking about the DOJ report. We're going to post online these parts of reports you can see, plus their work from disability rights. You can see what they've been talking about as well in the Disability Rights Network. Uh, and Virginia, great to see you. I appreciate you coming in. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunry. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Juan Matthews of Clean Cuts. And send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast, The Mark Steiner Show, and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.